And so I want to start today in reverse as we answer a few questions over the last couple of weeks. And the last couple of weeks, I looked at week one, we looked at spiritual warfare as real as the air you breathe, question mark. And we looked at the idea that um, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 6, which is where we're going to go tonight. So you can go ahead and turn there if you want. In Ephesians 6, it says our battle is not against flesh and blood. Uh, In fact, it says that our battle is against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 6.12. And so we looked at that and we tried to examine, is spiritual warfare a real thing? And a lot of folks in, mo- in the modern world would say spiritual warfare, that's probably like, like the devil, like the guy with the red suit and the horns, like that's probably not happening anymore. Uh, demons, those kinds of things, probably not happening anymore. And to me, that's the perfect sign that it's all very real. Because if you're Satan, what's the number one thing you want to do? You want to make people forget you exist. And I think he's done a fine job of that. And I think he's done it also in many pulpits all over the country. And so, We looked at that. The second week, we looked at the idea of testing every spirit, which is trying to discern when I get that thought, when I get that idea, when I have that motive, when I want to do that thing, where's it coming from? We looked at 1 John chapter 4. And then last week, we looked at prayer and forgiveness, which doesn't always click when you think about spiritual warfare, but prayer and forgiveness are a key part of this idea of spiritual warfare. And from that, if you, if you go back just a little bit, in, uh, in Ephesians 4, if you look at verses 26, 27, 28, it says, Be angry, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give an opportunity for the devil or a foothold for the devil. So here's the idea. This is the first thing that I want to tie up. Um, the first question I want to tie up is this. Folks were like, hey, I hear you. The devil is real. Spiritual warfare happens. I need to put on the spiritual armor, Ephesians 6. Um, But I don't understand how unforgiveness and spiritual warfare go hand in hand. So what happens is that when I choose to not forgive someone, like let's say Noah right here. Let's say Noah and I are in a fight um, and, and I just choose, man, I don't like Noah anymore. Now, Noah and I have known each other a long time. I like Noah. But if I choose, man, I'm done with Noah. Well, what I start to do is I start to become judge, jury, and executioner over him. I do not allow room for the Lord to be the judge, the jury, and the ultimate decider over Noah. I take his place. And what happens is I've just, cre- I've just committed heresy. I've just pushed the Lord away, and I've become the God of my own life. And so it's a, it's a clear moment when I have moved God out of my life for me to be victim to the, to the wiles of Satan. I have just given the devil an opportunity, and it's called bitterness. When I start to harbor a long-term rejection of a person, and I think I know what's best for their punishment, At that point, when bitterness comes into play, I have now opened myself up to all kinds of opportunities for Satan to come in. And it may have nothing to even do with my dislike of Noah, who I really do like. It may have nothing to do with that. What could happen? There are lots of folks in the world that have fallen into all kinds of sexual sin, and if you traced it back, 
you'd probably find unforgiveness or hurt in their life against another person. There are folks who have become, in, who have become so career-driven that success and status and money and all of those things have become an idol in their life. And if you traced it back, why did you become that person? It's amazing how many times you'll go back to a moment when a person is unhealthy in their pursuit of wealth and power and status and all those things. It's amazing how many times you can trace it back to a time when they were offended by someone else, never let it go, and they gave a foothold to the devil. And it is not uncommon at all to find someone who used to be a strong Christian and they wonder, whatever happened to that relationship with the Lord? So, spiritual attack and spiritual warfare, if you want to avoid it, because Satan is like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. Peter tells us that in 1 Peter 5. He's a roaring lion looking for those whom he may devour. If He's coming after us anyway, and the demons are coming after us, and we've got this great cosmic battle coming at us. If we want to just avoid any unnecessary casualties, one of the first things we have to do is to seek forgiveness of those who have offended us. And you can go back and listen to the podcast. I told a long story last week about my personal journey with some of that. Um, but one of the things that also came out was folks said, hey, what is the difference between, or they said, I've never thought about the difference between being forgiven and forgiving. And it was actually surprising for me to hear how many of you hadn't really thought about the idea of, I thought Christianity was all about being forgiven, not forgiving. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Father, forgive me of my sins as, as I forgive those who sin against us. Like that's how I'm supposed to pray. God, forgive me of my sins as I forgive those who sin against us. Jesus goes on after he gets done giving the Lord's prayer. And he says, by the way, if you forgive men their sins against you, your father will forgive you. If you do not forgive men their sins against you, your father will not forgive you. Jesus reiterates that above every other point that he gives in the Sermon on the Mount on his own prayer. He talks about how you must extend forgiveness. Hear me on this. One of the marks that you truly are a Christian is that you can let other people's offenses go. It's one of the marks that you're a Christian. In John 13, Jesus said, they will know you by the way you love one another. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, basically, I'm going to paraphrase, he said, it's easy for you to love your friends. That's what the pagans do. It's when you love your enemies that it counts. It is very unnatural for you to love people that have offended you. But that is one of the marks that you are born again. God forgave you undeservingly, and you extend that forgiveness to others. Now, also last week we did talk about there's a key difference, though, between forgiving someone, not harboring bitterness, and trusting someone. There's plenty of people that you need to forgive probably. Probably very few of them you need to trust. And that is a big difference. And yes, you can do that. You can forgive someone by the grace of God without inviting them back into your circle of trust. So, uh, let's see. There were a couple of other questions. Um, one question was based on Luke 23. And the question is, does God forgive people who don't ask? Um, well, if God forgave everyone who never asked 
then that would be what's called universalism, and that would mean that eventually he would forgive everyone who never asked, and then everybody would go to heaven, and there would be no, uh, there would be no need for the atonement of Christ. There would be no need for the punishment of sins, uh, a lot of what the Bible is built on. And that's a very, very brief and grossly overstated theology right there. But if, so no, God doesn't forgive people who don't ask. But if you were like playing Bible trivia with me, you could raise your hand and you could say, yeah, but what about in Luke 23, Jesus is on the cross. Do you remember he says a few different statements on the cross? Do you remember what he says to the people? He says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Now that is a very interesting moment. Does, did Jesus forgive everybody around the cross, even the folks that were just like, oh, didn't mean to see the crucifixion. I was just going to like the market. Like did he, like everybody, does he forgive everybody? I think the most accurate way to read that in light of all the other scriptures would be an intercessory prayer. Jesus is praying that those folks would come to know him and know his father. I think he's praying the same kind of prayer that a lot of you have prayed for friends and family members, that friends and family members have prayed for you probably. And the Lord answered that prayer in several people's lives. For instance, there's a centurion and he's out there and he's standing and when Jesus dies and he knows the, I don't know if he knew at that point the temple veil had been torn, but he knew that there was an earthquake. He knew that the sky had grown dark. He knew a lot of stuff was going on when this, this particular man was on the cross being crucified. And he looked up at Jesus when he died and he said, surely this was the son of God. One of the thieves on the cross next to him repents and comes to know the Lord in that moment. There were several people that God did answer that prayer Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. There were several people, but it is still a limited atonement that we see overall in Scripture. Now, let's carry on. Uh, let's see. I'll go with one more. How do you know that you are experiencing spiritual warfare versus something is actually wrong, i.e. sickness but no medical diagnosis, mental health, etc.? So you see somebody on the street in Atlanta and you're driving in your fully air-conditioned vehicle and it's awesome and, uh, and it's like 85 degrees and the person is walking around and they're saying stuff to somebody who's not there, they're waving their arms and you're like, oh, that poor person. Do they have a mental illness? Are they high or are they under the influence of something? Or could they be demon-possessed? I don't know. I don't know case by case which, which is which. I do think that our knee-jerk reaction in the Western world is to medicate people, though. I do think there are times that we have medicated folks who have something deeply spiritual going on. And I know that flies in the face of your psychology classes and your psychiatry classes and your medical classes. I took the same ones. I know it flies in the face of that. My sister works at a, uh, a facility for teenagers um, who have committed incredible crimes. Um, she works in a place in Cobb County where teenagers are walking around that have murdered their parents in their house and admitted to it and were then arrested and nobody knows what to do with them. She would tell you 
Some of these kids, as she's gotten to know them, are clearly, there's just clearly something really, really off, but then they're totally fine. And then there's something clearly, clearly off, and they're totally fine. And she would tell you, man, that just seems different than this kid over here who clearly has a medical condition going on. And so I think it's a case-by-case I think if you encounter someone who you think, this, this could be demonic, I would go back to the Scriptures and I would look at the accounts, especially in the Gospels, of the way that Jesus handled these folks and the way that even like their parents and friends would say, oh, sometimes the demon takes over my son and throws him in the fire or throws him on the ground. And then there's other times my son is fine. I would go back and I would look at those. I'd come to me or another pastor here and seek counsel. I do think it happens. I just think it's hard to tell sometimes. So that being said, let's go answer other questions like, does prayer matter? Okay, here we go. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to look for a few minutes at Ephesians 6, 18 through 20 and answer a few questions as we wrap up this idea of prayer and, uh, and spiritual warfare. And we'll call it a day and start a new series next week. Father, I thank you so much that you love us. I thank you that you give us your scriptures to, to warn us that our battle's not against flesh and blood, that the enemy is real. Lord, help our eyes to be open, our minds to be stayed on your word. Lord, help us to be able to test the spirits to know what is of you and what is not. And Lord, may we be humble in the process because we know that Peter, when Satan asked to sift him like wheat, fell and denied Jesus. We know so many folks have fallen who thought they were strong. And at the same time, Lord, help us to not be folks who live in fear of the enemy because we know from your word that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. That is, if we are your children. Lord, move in this place tonight in a special way. And I thank you that you're bigger than all the darkness. It's in Jesus' name, amen. I just am amazed, by the way, at all the, the spiritual stuff that's out there. And people say, oh, spiritual warfare, those things, they don't exist anymore. Yesterday at Publix, Publix, I was fixing a fine dinner for Heather and I last night. Publix didn't have what I needed, so the Whole Foods did. But my first trip to Publix was like I'm in line and like I could have found out everything I ever wanted to know about my horoscope or like Ouija boards, all kinds, like in the checkout aisle at Publix, who knew? It was so weird. Uh, but I said, you should have come to our church. Um, you could have learned some stuff, checkout lady. Uh, anyway, I didn't tell her that. But so let's read Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. We are supposed to be praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that my words may be given to me and the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Now, this is very interesting. There's two types of prayers or two types of things we say to God in verse 18. Look at those. Do you see them? Verse 18, we're supposed to pray at all times in the spirit with prayer and supplication. So rule number one, tonight's kind of a theology of prayer night. Rule number one, there's two kinds of things that come out of our mouth when we're talking to God if we want our prayers to be heard. The first one is prayers and the second one is supplication. So prayer is actually a compound word and it means to lift up. 
to talk up. And so what am I doing? I'm talking to God about things of God. I can praise him. I can sing praises to him. I can acknowledge things about him that I've learned in the scriptures. I can talk to him about how good he is. I can talk to him about I'm feeling lonely. And we know that he's the great comforter and he's the shepherd and he's, he's always with us. That's prayer. I'm talking to God about things that are of him. So that's the first one. The second one is the one we pretty much always do, and we usually skip the first one. Usually, imagine being God for like 10 seconds here. If you were God today, you probably would have heard, and another thing I need, and oh, and one more thing I need, oh, and one more thing I need. Those are all supplications. Those are all supplications. At some point, not that he's us. We know that he is not a man like us. Well, the scriptures are clear about that, and thank the Lord he's not. But at some point, wouldn't you just get annoyed? What if you had one friend, and that's all they ever did to you? Every time they texted or called, you were like, oh, here's so-and-so. I wonder what they need now. You would be going back to, like, your fifth-grade self to your parents. Like, your parents were like, oh, they need one more thing. Oh, they need one more thing. Like, I get that if you're a new Christian, I understand that, but like some, we just all kind of need to grow up a little bit, like get to know who God is. The second thing we do though is supplication, and supplication is asking God for something on someone's behalf. I can ask God something on my behalf, or I can ask God something on someone else's behalf, but that's the second one. So we're supposed to pray all the time without ceasing, the scriptures tell us, and we're supposed to do it in two ways. One is just talking to God and telling him something about him or something you've learned about him or something you claim about him. And the second one is to ask for things. Now, if you hear nothing else tonight, I hope that you'll begin to tell God things about God. At least a quarter as much as you ask for things. So there's, there's all kinds of, of other types of prayers we can pray. I just want to give you one prayer that has been really helpful for me. If you're a note taker, Philippians 4, 4 through 8. I'm going to read it to you. I remember in college, the first time I prayed this prayer, I had a paper due. It was a, a, like a, a long paper, and it was due in like a short amount of time. And that's where I came up with my college mantra. If you wait till the last minute, it only takes a minute. And so, all right, there we go. Now everybody's got it. There we go. So, like, some of you, some of you just got sweaty. Like, your armpits are sweaty. You're like, I can never be friends with him. Uh, like, but it has worked. I have a graduate degree. Like, it's worked. It did fine. And so, uh, I'll read this to you. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, there it is again, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. There's a lot of different prayers I could pick out to kind of coach you in from the scriptures, but I really want to coach you in this one. The next time you're stressed about something, pull up Philippians 4, 4 through 8, and walk through it. 
Well, there's got to be supplication because I'm coming with thanksgiving in my heart. So I'll just give you an example. God, I thank you that you even care to hear. I thank you that you care to hear people all over the world. I thank you that you care to hear people who are in the ICU, people who have just lost someone, people who are just looking for a parking spot at the outdoor, like, you know, the mall or at the Beltline or wherever. And like, Lord, I, I just thank you that you're so good at hearing. And now, Lord, I have this little problem. I have a paper due in one hour that's going to take longer than one hour. But Lord, I know you're good, and I know I'm asking for a miracle, so you know what? Let's just bar that. Just help me to maybe finish it. Help me maybe to never do this again. I remember I prayed that prayer with a stack of books next to me, and I just walked through Philippians 4. And I got to the part as I was kind of reading it and talking to the Lord, and it says, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then verse 8, this is Heather's verse. She loves this verse. She's like, never forget verse 8 in this section. Finally, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy, think about those things. I remember I said, Amen. And it was unbelievable. And I think this was just the sweetness of the Lord here. The same pile of books that needed to be quoted and cited that had not been read were like right there. The computer screen was still there. But I'm telling you, I had the most incredible peace of Christ guarding my heart and my mind. In fact, I like re, I remember, if I remember right, I re-looked at the verse and I was like, it's real. The peace of Christ was just it was so thick you could taste it. And I remember thinking, the paper's not done, the books haven't been opened yet, but I feel like I'm in a whole new spot. I remember just buckling down and writing the paper and thinking, this is just sweet of the Lord to give us the peace that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And, and I, I did procrastinate other times. But... Um, in seminary, I learned how to not procrastinate as much, but I'm, it was so sweet to go through that for the first time. I think oftentimes, though, when we pray prayers, I think oftentimes our goal is to change God's mind, but it's not, our goal is not to change God's mind, but it's to know God's heart. I think so many times I'm so set on what I want that if I don't get it, then God failed. Let me read you um, a quote. There's a guy named Tony Campolo. He's a famous like pastor evangelist guy. He's an old man. His son, Bart, uh, Bart, Bart Campolo. He, uh, he, if you've, if you've seen the American gospel movies, the second one, he's quoted in the second one, he's interviewed in it, but Bart is an interesting fella. He's, he travels around and he's basically an evangelist for humanism and secularism. And, uh, and so he goes around and he tells everybody how they can, um, how they can deconstruct their faith and be just as happy being a secularist or a humanist. But Bart talks about when he got saved and here's what Bart says. Um, he says that his faith died the death of a thousand unanswered prayers. He says, it messed up my theology. I had a theology that said God could intervene and do stuff. But after a period of unanswered prayer, Bard admits, I had to change my understanding of God. Sovereignty had to get dialed down a bit. 
Campolo admitted that changing his view of God's sovereignty was the beginning of the end of his faith. Why? Because once you start adjusting your theology to match up to the reality you see in front of you, it's an infinite progression. So over the course of the next 30 years, he says that his ability to believe in a supernatural narrative or a God who intervenes and does anything died the death of a thousand unanswered prayers. I think one of the lies the devil wants to speak to us, this, my mom and I were talking about this, and she said, don't forget, a lot of people believe God is good to everybody but them. And I was like, oh, that is the lie that the devil wants us to believe. I prayed for that relationship to work out. I prayed for that job. I prayed for that school. I prayed for that person. I prayed for that thing. I prayed for that sick person. I prayed for all these things. I can give you a list of 20 things, and you could just say, Thomas, none of those ever happened. And your thought would be, you know what? I hear these stories. I hear these stories about you and your car and how you were stressed, and I'm sure you prayed about it. And then those people pulled up and said, we'll pay for your car to get fixed. And now you got your little sweet preacher voice or preacher story. I hope I don't have a preacher voice, but preacher story. Here's the deal. I could give you 50 other times I prayed over the last few weeks, and this happened. Nothing happened that I prayed for. But it doesn't change who God is. It's supposed to change my thoughts on what are you up to? All right, God, you said no to this, so what are you doing? And that's what happens. I begin on this journey. Let me just give you a verse. Maybe it's up on the screen here. Um, the quote, though, is, don't believe the lie. God is good to everyone but me. Psalm 119.68 says, you are good and you do good. So teach me your statutes. Psalm 119.68, David, David confesses, you are good and you do good. So God, teach me what you're up to. One of the fastest ways for your faith to slip is that you believe because God didn't answer your prayer, God stopped caring about you. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, look, if your father on earth knows how to give good gifts, how much more does your father in heaven know how to give good gifts? I mean, Garth Brooks said it pretty well a few years ago, right? Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Amen. I mean, he saw his old girlfriend, and then he had his wife with him, and he was like, she's better. Um, and I mean, like, just go listen to the song. Look, we're, we're commanded all kinds of different things about prayer. Just for the sake of time, I can, I can show you these. But for the sake of time, I, I want to come back to this, this idea. And R.C. Sproul says it really, really well. God will never, ever change. You don't want a God whose mind you can change because if you could change his mind to answer yes to this, somebody else can change it to say no to that, and now we have a stalemate. You don't want a God who will change. You want a God who has a plan. You want a God who is steady and trustworthy. But Sproul says, God will never, ever change. Our great hope in prayer, therefore, is not to change what God has planned, but to bring about what God has planned. 
We do not strive to change the heart of God, but to draw out of his heart in our circumstances, or to draw his heart out in our circumstances. And then he quotes Martin Luther, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, says Martin Luther, but laying hold of his willingness. Sometimes God says no, and it's always going to be a no. I don't claim to understand the mind of God in this, but he tells the story in Luke 18. He tells the story about this, this persistent widow who came to this judge who didn't even care about people. And Jesus, it says at the beginning, Jesus told this story so that people would pray and not give up. He tells this story, this widow keeps going to the judge and the judge says, get out of here. She goes back to the judge and the judge says, get out of here. She goes back to the judge. She basically wore the judge out and the judge said, I don't care about you. I don't care about the justice. I don't care about anything. I care about my schedule and you're crowding it. So I'll do what you want. Now God is much better than that judge. He values his children much more than that judge valued that lady. But the point here is sometimes because you get a no, you quit. And I think sometimes God just wants to see how close to him do you want to get in this process or do you just want what he can give? Do you just want the giver? I mean, do you want the gift or do you want the giver? Sometimes when you have to, when, when he says no once and you keep going back and you pray over and over and over again, what happens is you, you stop caring so much about what he's going to give you and you start caring about what is he up to? Who is he? Let me know him more. What are you doing? And it becomes this sweet romance of you're getting closer and closer and closer to the throne of God. I could tell you story after story about how no's ended up being the very best things. And I think this all kind of begs the question, well, did our master, did Jesus ever, ever get a no? Sure he did, three times in the garden in particular. What did he pray three times in the garden? He said, Father, take this cup from me. And he's like sick at his stomach praying, asking God to do something. And he knows God's plan. He is God. He goes back again and he says, please take this cup from me. If there's any other way. And he goes back a third time with his friends falling asleep, abandoning him, only foreshadowing how they're going to abandon him even more. He goes back a third time and he says, Father, please take this cup from me. And then he ends that third time by saying, not my will, but your will be done. And aren't we glad that the father and the son didn't change their mind in that moment. We needed them to follow through on what had been planned. So I think this begs the question, this is my last, my last thought for you tonight. Do things happen in prayer that wouldn't have happened otherwise? If God is sovereign and he's in control and he knows what's going to happen, do things happen in prayer that wouldn't happen otherwise? Because you could listen to all this tonight and you could be like, so I'm just going to try to get to know God to the point where I guess what he wants and then I pray for what he wants. And what, when I pray what he wants, then of course it's going to happen. Well, in a real rudimentary sense, that is a little bit where we're headed. The idea is that prayer draws me to the heart of God. And the more I know the heart of God, the more I pray in accordance to the will of God. And when I pray in accordance to the will of God, God does exactly what he had planned. 
But the beauty is not in what he gives me. The beauty is in the getting to know the giver. And I begin to know his heart. You are good and you do good things. Teach me your statutes. I think Jesus, if things didn't happen in prayer that wouldn't happen otherwise, I think Jesus would, would have been a liar because in Matthew 7, 7 through 12, he says to knock and the door will be opened, to seek and we will find him to ask and it will be given. I think we're supposed to ask, we're supposed to seek, we're supposed to knock. I think we're supposed to be that persistent lady going to the judge. I think we're supposed to be pounding the door of the throne room of heaven and saying, God, please show up. My mom's boss, his name is Kyrill, and uh, Kyrill, um, he grew up around here. He went to Apostles growing up. Uh, he, he tells these two stories. One is uh, he was on a mission trip to, uh, to, to China, and it was back in the day when you had like the phone in the, in the leather case. Um, you're probably, like some of you are like, oh, my dad had that in his like business car. Like he had the phone in the leather case in his backpack because he was the leader of the mission trip. And he had the passports and he had the money in his backpack. And he was walking and he knew these two guys were going to rob him. They were making it pretty obvious as the day went on and they were following him and then they would disappear and they would come right back. And the, the briefcase phone thing started ringing and he was like super inopportune time for the briefcase phone to start ringing. So he stops and he pulls it out and he's like, great, now they're going to see it. But at that point in time when your cell phone rang, like you answered it. It could be the president, whatever, like you answered it. Because they didn't, it was like 25 cents a call. International, this is probably a $50 phone call. So he's like, must be important. So he answers it. It's his cousin in South Georgia. His cousin said, Cairo, what are you doing? And he said, I'm on a mission trip. I'm in China. You know that. She said, yeah, what are you doing? He said, well, there's two men that are following me, and I'm pretty sure they're going to rob me. She said, I knew it. She said, I was frying catfish, and I knew something was wrong. She said, we're going to pray them away right now. And he said, okay. So she said, let's pray. So in South Georgia, she starts praying. He starts praying. Next thing you know, those two guys like skirted off and disappeared. Same cousin. A few years later, Cairo was in a bad car wreck. The car wreck was right at 5 p.m. His car was totaled. It was crunched like an accordion. Um, he couldn't get to his, like his phone was messed up, everything. He's off at the hospital. It was a terrible moment when he finally gets his phone back and he's in the hospital. He's looking at it. And at 5 p.m., there was a voicemail. Carol, this is your cousin. I know something's wrong. I know it's wrong. And me and the Lord, we're talking about it. That, I'm telling you, that lady has incredibly effective prayers because she knows the heart of the Father. Here's my last story. There's so many scriptures in my notes here, but with the speakers running out and all the things, there's just not a lot of time left. So I'll tell you this because it comes from my favorite Bible study ever, Experiencing God. And the story is this. Uh, a guy named Richard Blackaby, he runs this ministry now, but his dad is Henry Blackaby. And Henry tells this story. He says, for my, for his, for my son's sixth birthday, my oldest son, Richard, he was old enough to have a bicycle. I looked all around for a bicycle and I finally found a blue Schwinn. And I'll just tell you the rest of the story instead of reading it. So his dad went out and bought this blue Schwinn bike. And at the time, probably early 80s, a blue Schwinn was like, very nice. And so he buys this bike and he puts it in the garage and hides it. Now he knew his son wanted a bike. 
And he said, Richard, what kind of bike do you want? And he said, I want a red bike. And he was like, I got my work cut out for me. And so over the next few months, it was amazing. But that red bike that Richard wanted, over time, being around his father, turned into really wanting a blue Schwinn bike. And so then he started asking, Dad, can I please have a blue Schwinn bike for my birthday? Can I please have a blue Schwinn bike? And he's like, I don't know, son. Those are pretty nice. And I don't know if we can get one of those. It's like a lot of money. You know, I'm like a ministry guy. I don't, we'll just see. And on his birthday, here comes the blue Schwinn bike that his dad had prepared for him the whole time. It's the Holy Spirit's job to put on our hearts what the Father has for us, quote unquote, in his garage. It's when we don't listen to the Holy Spirit and we say, forget it, I know what I want and you better answer this prayer, God. That's when our faith begins to die the death of a thousand unanswered prayers. It's when we listen to the Holy Spirit and we realize, God, I think your heart is over here. Let me start praying towards your heart. That all of a sudden those blue Schwinn moments begin to happen. And so maybe tonight the Lord is stirring in your heart and maybe it's very contrary to where you want it to go. But if the Holy Spirit is stirring in your heart tonight, I challenge you to give in and begin to pray where the Lord is putting on your heart, what he's doing in your life, how he's leading you, because he does good things and he is good. And he's trying to teach us his statutes. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you that this whole idea of Satan roaming around and coming after us is intricately tied into a battle for us to know you, for the gospel to go out, for us to pray things of you so that other people see you working. Lord, would you help our hearts to give in to yours, that we might be people that the world looks at and says, man, there's something different about them, the way they love one another, the way they forgive each other, the way that they ask this God about things and things happen. Lord, all of this is for your glory, so may you be glorified in us. Move in our hearts tonight, Lord. Begin to do a work. In Jesus' name, amen.